Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. I'm here with George Edelman for the No Film School podcast for the week of August 6th. 2019. We're going to be talking a little bit more, I can't believe it, but we have to, about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We're also going to be talking about the new movie The Lighthouse and a specific technical aspect that every filmmaker should understand. We've got that. We've got gear news for the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera and an Ask No Film School. All that this week on the No Film School Podcast. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. This is Charles Hain. I'm here with George Edelman. We're doing another No Film School podcast, and we have to keep talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, there are other movies. We are going to talk about other movies. But there's some more stuff about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Quentin Tarantino that have come out that I thought George wrote a really interesting post about it this week, about an interview that Tarantino gave to a podcast and, and it inspired so many thoughts in me that we had to talk about it. And then, George, you confessed that you had more thoughts about it than you were even able to share in your post. So do you want to give a quick rundown of, of the story we're talking about before we start talking about it? We titled it The One Thing Tarantino Hates About Boogie Nights, which maybe is a slightly strong word to use in hate, but he sounds pretty passionate when you listen to him on this interview, which was on The Ringer. Um, and it's just a fascinating to me and also kind of hysterical look at <laughs> what he doesn't like about the movie. I would have never guessed it. It gives us a really good idea of who Quentin Tarantino is at his core. Um, basically, he says that so the character of Jack Horner, who Burt Reynolds plays in Boogie Nights, Tarantino claims is a dead ringer for real life porn director Gerard Damiano, who I guess made... Deep Throat, which is one of the most influential, important porn films of all time. So I guess it makes sense that Tarantino is so aware of this man and his work, but Tarantino knows every director of everything ever. And uh, Tarantino says it's clear that Burt Reynolds' character was based on Damiano, and Damiano was a great filmmaker in his own right, and he would never have thought that he made a good movie when he made a bad one. And why is this important? And why does this create uh, the complaint about Boogie Nights? It gets a little more complicated still. But if you remember in Boogie Nights, there's the moment where Jack Horner gets really excited and the camera pushes in on him and he says, this is my masterpiece. This is the one I want them to remember me by. And we've just seen clips of this pretty awful, silly cop porn that he made with uh, Dirk Diggler. And it's hard for Tarantino to believe that this Gerard Damiano-based director would think that that was good. To him, that just fractures the whole reality of Boogie Nights. Now, to me, and part of the post is I think that he misses some of the point of what uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was doing there. It was kind of a metaphor. It was also sort of maybe just in the context of what uh, the Jack Horner character has done. This felt like an achievement, but... Uh, it's 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 an interesting window into who Tarantino is that he's so hung up on this and he so passionately upset about it and of course he and Paul Thomas Anderson have discussed this thing and I can't I'd, I'd love to know what Paul Thomas Anderson thinks of this complaint but obviously for me you know I love Boogie Nights it's a movie that I adore and one of the first movies I saw that made me fall in love with movies and movie making and so it's fascinating to me to hear this sort of interesting complaint from another filmmaker I respect. Many of us had a period in our career that I think Tarantino skipped, 
where we worked on, you know, when I first got out of film school, I was willing to show up and gaff anything I needed to make a living. I didn't, you know, Tarantino dropped out of high school and was, you know, his road into the film industry was not working for other people. He wrote scripts that were so good because he's so phenomenally talented that like there is not that spending your 20s working on a variety of qualities. I mean, it's not even junk because I don't want anybody who I listened, who like I worked with in my 20s to listen to this and think that it was all, I worked on some good projects. I worked on some bad projects. I, I needed to pay rent and I would like, you know, you need me to set up light stands over here. I will set up light stands over here. And that phase in my life is, is one that like, I look back on fondly. I made a lot of good friends. I had a lot of funny adventures. I traveled to a bunch of crazy places. And one of the discoveries of that time in my life is that sometimes it's just as fun to work on a bad movie as it is to work on a good movie. But also, sometimes it's very hard to tell when you're in the middle of something if it is bad or good. And I remember being around some product projects where I was like looking at what was being shot and it seemed like you know, I hadn't read the script or whatever. I was just there as like best boy electric, but like, holy shit, it seems like something good is happening here. And the crew has good morale and it seems like the director cares and it seems like stuff's happening and I'm watching good performances. And then you watch the final movie and it's terrible. And like, you know, and then some moments where I was on sets where I was like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck are you guys doing? This seems terrible. And then it came out. Well, like it is very hard in the middle of production to know if something is good or not. Like, at what, like, you know, in some ways, sometimes with a movie, in pre-production, you're trying as hard as you can to make it as good as possible. And then through production and post, you're just trying to keep going. Whereas there's that great Truffaut quote, right, where he's like, every movie, every movie when you're writing it is going to be the best movie ever made. And then while you're shooting and editing, it's the biggest piece of shit that you hope no one sees and it doesn't ruin your career. I mean, he, he, he says it in French and it's much more poetic, but it's like once you start shooting... You're just trying to fucking finish the goddamn movie and you're trying to make it the best thing it can possibly be. But like once you're in it, it's so hard to see it clearly. And it and so like those moments from Boogie Nights have been really interesting moments that have echoed through my life in a variety of ways. Because like, you know, I, I then I, I've directed quite a bit, but I also worked as a colorist quite a bit. And like I've been in a color suite with directors who are watching something who are like, oh my God, yeah, I finally did it. Because, you know, their whole career they've been making things, there is no ob objective like one to 10 scale or whatever. You can't rate movies one to 10 any more than you can date like people one to 10. But like, let's say they've been working at like, they've been working at a three and they finally made a five and they're sitting there in their color suite and they made a five and it feels so good to have made a five that they're proud of themselves for having made a five. Tarantino has been firing at nines and tens for his whole career after having made twos or threes or made nothing. And when you finally make that five or your six, it can feel like you made something great. And I, I swear to God, I feel like I've had directors sitting next to me. And I thought about that boogie nights moment where yeah. they were so <laughs> proud of having made something where I'm sitting there and I'm like, this isn't that great. I've definitely worked on what I would consider junk. And I think that part of what happens is that you, like you said, you lose the forest for the trees in the process because you are surviving on a set sometimes on certain kinds of productions is winning. Getting through a day is a success yeah. um, with certain budgets, certainly, and certain, all the 
kinds of things that get in your way. Um, and so, you know, when I saw the movie, I was in love with the the comedy of the moment. But I think very quickly early on in my career as well, I connected with that ragtag mentality of like, can we even pull this off? Like, can we even do this? And like you said, going going from a three to a five feels like a big deal. Sometimes just accomplishing it, getting in the, in the can is a big deal. And I think that uh, yeah, he doesn't, I think he doesn't see the accomplishment in that. I also think that for him, yeah, the firing nines and tens, but um, knowing he, he has what I would characterize as like a truly uniquely stubborn and in a good way, belief in himself that what he's doing is good. And that if you don't like it, that's fine and it doesn't matter. And you're maybe wrong, too. He really is, he being Quentin Tarantino, is supremely confident in the stuff he puts out. And it is somewhat contagious. I think it's helped guide his career where he said, someone will say, well, you can't really do that, can you? And be like, just watch me. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. And I think it's going to be great. And eventually people kind of come along for the ride. And I think that a lot of us, like we have the, we look at it and we say, "Eh, I don't think this is so good, or maybe this doesn't work. Or like, I don't think he has those moments. I think he's supremely confident that what he's doing is great. Um, And I think that that also is why, you know, he doesn't understand this idea of looking at something bad and thinking that it's good because it's like to him, he's looking at something he's done. It's like, it's good. Of course it's good. Right. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't relate to that idea of not, not seeing the big picture. I don't know. For me, I never felt like that moment was judging. Uh, I felt like it was affectionate for the Jack Horner character, right? Like Jack Horner is doing a thing he's proud of. He's pushing himself out of his own comfort zone so I never felt like it was mocking him for thinking it was good. Obviously, we as the audience are supposed to know it's not amazing. But I right. also think that there's like... <laughs> Angels you, live in my town. Yeah. yeah. I, the, other, can, the other thing I would say is we know it's not amazing. We know that there's a joke there. But we also feel that he is happy with his work. And that's the the success of the moment. It's not... Uh, we're not judging the quality of it. We're judging the arc of the story for him and for uh, Dirk Diggler's character. They are at their peak and things are going well. And maybe it's a silly peak, but hey, making movies, normal movies is kind of silly. Like we're not, there's something unprecious about it, if you know what I mean. That it's like, yeah. they're having fun. They're doing what their audience wants them to do. These movies are a hit and they're winning awards. And I think the question of like, is it objectively good or not sort of just becomes like, I don't think it matters, right? I think it's, it's totally just irrelevant. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's just like they're they're in the zone. And then later when you see the movies that are bad, if you actually stop or in the bad in the in their opinion and you stop and think about it, like, is it really all that different? Well, what what matters is it's different to them. Right. Like that their experience of it in the course of the narrative is that now they're making bad movies before they were making good ones. But I still find it fascinating that to Quentin Tarantino, this particularly because it's like it's connected to who he considers as a real filmmaker. Um, he is so defensive of filmmakers knowing that when their work is good and not making that kind of mistake, it's a fascinating window into his process to me. Um, and I also just to quickly tack on one more thought with it. Uh, we've also all had the experience where we have been, when we were young, we were, we, when we were starting, 
We made something with all this love and passion without the idea of all the pieces that need to come together for it to be a quality finished product. And I think we can all connect on some level to, I grabbed the camcorder, I shot an image that looks good, I'm a good filmmaker. Before, not to infantilize the Jack Horner character, but before we then looked at it and thought, yeah, you know, that edit doesn't work or the sound is weird or like we just were proud of the one thing we did. Does that make sense? And then yeah. and we can relate to that pride and joy in the work um, that, yeah, maybe we don't know all the ins and outs yet, but we know what looks good on screen and, and we captured one great moment, you know. Yeah. But I mean, it goes back to the same thing we were talking about last week with Tarantino is one of the things. And it's funny, it's been really on my mind because of the uh, because of talking about it last week. Like one of the things Tarantino is very good at is even in his sort of ludicrous worlds, really going into the precise details of like how reality works and grounding things in that. And like I was watching some TV show where um and my wife where like they were standing behind a car that you don't need to go into to unrelease the trunk. And clearly because some screenwriter at some point said that they had to, the actors were like, oh, can you go into the car and release the trunk? And I was looking at it and I was like, you don't need to do that on that car. And it completely and it's like that kind of <laughs> polish you would never see in a Tarantino movie. Like right. that kind like it's like detail detail is how if you paint enough detail into the world you can get away with your movie being about like a down on look, his luck boxer throwing a fight, which is like the most cliche of the film noir characters because there's so much detail in the story of the Bruce Willis character in Pulp Fiction. And like, so of course, in Tarantino's world, if he was working on Boogie Nights, he would want to make sure that the project that Jack Horner made that he was proud of was actually reflective of what Jack Horner would be proud of if he saw it. And oh, that's another excellent point. I, I yeah, because I not not to just like, but I, honestly, like he he would sink you into just like he does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood into that reality with yeah. that goes far deeper than the cliches of this is what not to put down Boogie Nights again. I adore that movie. Oh my, that movie is phenomenal. It, it's like. Yeah, but it's like he, the the Tarantino version of that movie would be so much more seeped in specifics like you say but also like uh what every every little like cranny of the world would be exposed and explored beyond the cliche of porn acting is stilted and bad it would be like no 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 it's you know it's like it's so specific in this one way that you would just be lost in it but that's the the distinction is that like i don't think there could be a tarantino version of boogie nights because like I mean, look, there's probably some 1970s well-acted porn movie, but like the movies that Tarantino has all this affection for, all of the stuff with Bounty Law and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, Elliot Silverstein was directing episodes of shows like Bounty Law, who's like a director I'm obsessed with, who went on to do Capaloo and Man Called Horse and a bunch of other stuff. Like it was a world where people who were like, you know. It was a little bit yes. of cheese ball, Real but there was like, yes. there were craft yes. people working on creating yes. those things. And like, you know, even when you watch those little like little snippets of the 14 fists of McCluskey or whatever, like yes. there's still goodness in there. Whereas Boogie Nights is fundamentally about people like, I love that film so much, but like, I don't think <laughs> Angels in My Town was, my guess is that Angels in My Town is not something you could, like the movies that. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about, 
I could totally picture it's Saturday afternoon. I'm a little tired. I've been on a long hike or whatever. And I'm like, 14 fifths of McCluskey. I'm watching that. Where's the pretzels? Yeah. I yes. can't picture a scenario in which I'm going to watch 90 minutes of Angels in My Town. Again, I think Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Boogie Nights were getting at loving and understanding people despite the quality of the work in the, yeah. in the, and like having affection for their their struggle and their suffering and their their childlike belief in themselves at times that goes beyond whether or not it's yes. good or bad it becomes it becomes immaterial and it becomes beautiful in in a way where yeah Tarantino's version of it I honestly when I think of like what's Tarantino's version of that movie it's probably like four scenes right because <laughs> he always yeah. like only picks a few locations that are really suspenseful and drawn out over one like weird you know unknown s- threat like it's a completely different thing because his way of making a movie his way of attacking it is so completely different but also, just to wrap up, why again to come back to why we love talking about this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it it lets us. Com- he is a unique kind of filmmaker, and we don't get a lot of unique mainstream movies anymore. Uh, for better or for worse, whatever you think of it, it's not the in 1997, 98. Boogie Nights was 97, I think. We were getting a lot of those. That was yeah. a lot of voices popping into the 90s, like Tarantino, Anderson, the the Coens, that were trying things different, and their movies were specific to them, and none of them were going to be the same. And right now, we're getting a lot of movies that have to fit in the kind of what the the four quadrants. Um, and part of it is the way the industry's changed and all the streaming platforms and all the ways our attention is drawn. But let's, you know, if this is, I was thinking, is uh, is the once upon a time in Hollywood thing to people of our generation sort of like what the moon landing is to the boomers? Are we just like anything with Tarantino and we're going to have to think about it and talk about it a lot? And or, or like, you know, the great generation in World War Two or the new. Is this just one of these landmarks that we can't let go of? And maybe younger people are thinking like, why? Uh, why won't these old guys stop talking about Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> I mean, so first off, I have the perfect way to wrap this up. But before I wrap it up, I do want to say I don't remember Hateful Eight feeling like as big a deal. Now, granted, at the no, time, I wasn't working in film school. I really like Hateful Eight. I enjoyed it. I watched <laughs> yeah. the four parter on Netflix. I'm, a, I'm I enjoyed it. But like. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood feels more relevant and more of a discussion piece in some way. And I'm going to wrap it up with this because it harkens back to the beginning of our conversation. The distinction between Boogie Nights and a Tarantino movie is that P.T. Anderson is interested in misfit oddballs. Like Angels in Angels Live in My Town was not a cultural phenomenon in 1979 Tarzana. <laughs> you cannot assume lots of people have seen it. Nobody's going to recognize the people on the street. Like it is a niche product. And, you know. Uh, the same way that in Phantom Thread, it's a niche product. There's a fascination with this like small segment of culture and showing the humanity of even working on a small segment in that culture. If you do it with love and affection, there is all of that in Boogie Nights. Tarantino wouldn't yes. make Boogie Nights because Tarantino is interested in monoculture. He yes. like loves it and misses it. If you look at the big themes he's been hitting recently, it's killing Nazis, it's burning down slaveholders, it is these big unifying themes, which I love about Tarantino, but even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, everybody in that show has seen Bounty Law, right? The Manson people yes. have seen Bounty Law, grew up in Bounty <laughs> Law, had the brief, like he's interested in the big cultural touchstones, red apple cigarettes, been around since the 1860s, like is like, and I love that about Tarantino, neither of these are critical takes of either filmmaker, but that's what it is like. 
the bigger distinction for me in Tarantino's comments isn't that, you know, that Jack Horner character wouldn't have been proud of making that. It's that Tarantino <laughs> would never make a film about someone who made something so small. Like, <laughs> you or know so I mean? crappy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, or of such like niche appeal. Yes. Like, Tarantino's never going to, yes. like, he's just not interested in that because the biggest that audience could be is so small. Right. I, I'm That's aware so that in true, the 70s, yeah. the Deep fin- Throat was like a breakout thing where like norm, like Larry McMurtry wrote an article about Deep Throat, like Deep Throat had some mainstream appeal. But like that was the only one as far as I know. I don't know the history of pornography as well as maybe and I should. Oh, but. Well, Quentin Tarantino, one of the other just funny things, and you really should, people should listen to the clip because it's just him being himself unabashedly, but he's really like hammers the fact that he knows porn better than Paul Thomas Anderson. He makes that very clear because he worked in a porn theater and he also establishes, he, he must say the name Gerard Damiano a hundred times. I never thought about the man or heard of him. It's so fascinating that he knows so much about him and he was so defensive of him to me, but yeah, uh, he's, he would only, he would also be interested in the Gerard Damiano story in that man as a really important, valuable filmmaker who influenced the culture with Deep Throat, not the small version that Jack Horner is. It, you said it very well, though. So yeah. I, I agree. So, and that is why this was the relevant conversation. She wraps it up, ties it all up into one little bow. So now we also have to talk about another movie, and we're talking about this a little more. So this trailer actually came out a week ago. This isn't breaking news, but I wanted to talk about it a little more because it is one of the great... Con- It's not like one of the great confusions, but it is a common confusion about filmmaking that comes up a lot. It was a good opportunity to talk about it on the podcast. So Robert Pattinson, R. Pats, who personally I think is great casting (laughs) for Batman. I'm very excited about that, is in a new movie from the director of The Witch. um, And the new movie is called The Lighthouse. And um, one of the things that is really relevant for filmmakers in The Lighthouse, it also stars Willem Dafoe. Um, doing is, one of the best accents. These accents, you got to watch the trailer for the accents alone. But once you've watched the trailer, uh, you should appreciate the fact that they're doing a very deliberate pastiche of an early film. And I'm not going to call it a technique, an early film artifact. And this is something that the every once in a while when you're teaching like black and white filmmaking or black and white cinematography or specifically black and white film stock, students have a lot of questions about it. And one of the reasons they have a lot of our questions about it is because in the beginning of filmmaking... Black and white film was orthochromatic. And then in the 30s, there was a transition to what we call panchromatic film. And mostly in modern film shoots, we work with panchromatic film. Even on this project, they worked with panchromatic film. I don't even know if you could get orthochromatic film now. But not all black and white is orthochromatic. And I just wanted to make that distinction really clear because this is something that comes up a lot with film students for some reason where, you know, we're loading up black and white film stock in an RES for the first time. And they're like, oh, should I put like brown lipstick? I heard brown lipstick is necessary for working in black and white. Um, I don't know why this is a thing that comes up. There is actually a makeup (laughs) school in L.A. that I think is like spreading a lot of this weird, mysterious knowledge. So I wanted to talk a little bit this week about what orthochromatic and panchromatic even means and then how they replicated that on this film shoot. Because I think it's super cool. I like it when film directors get down and dirty and nerdy in their filmmaking. So panchromatic pan is sort of like a wide, you know, a wide spectrum so panchromatic film is sensitive to the full spectrum of light. It's sensitive to the blue light. It's sensitive to the red light. It's sensitive to the full spectrum of light. Orthochromatic film was sensitive to only a very small spectrum of light. 
So early films, like I said, before the 30s, you're watching a film from the 20s, you're watching a film from the teens. I think Pancro's, I think like Speed Pancro films started to come out like 38, 39. I think Kodak got uh, patents for some of their early panchromatic stocks. Um, Orthochromatic stocks look very weird to the human eye. So, for instance, one of the classic things you hear a lot about are lips. Lips would look very weird. And the reason why lips would look weird is because they're very red. And orthochromatic stocks were not nearly as sensitive to red light as they are to blue light. So, uh, in order to get lips to look normally on film, you would use special lipsticks that would often look brown to your eye. But by shifting your lips away from the red to a a more neutral color, they would reproduce more naturally on film. Now, this is the reason why whenever you're thinking about um, working in black and white and you want to do anything orthochromatically, you want to do a lot of testing to see how these things look because it can often be unpredictable. So you can't get orthochromatic film stocks anymore. So what they used is they used a specially designed Schneider cyan filter. And remember, whenever you're working with a filter on the lens, it's actually not adding any color, right? It's not like there's extra light in that filter adding light. It's just subtracting the complement. So a cyan filter on the lens subtracts that complementary red light. It's blocking all that red light that the original film stock wouldn't have been sensitive to. And it's only passing that cyan colored area of the spectrum through. So the film stock is only getting light that's cyan, cyan balanced and it's recreating that orthochromatic look. Now, can you do something like this in DaVinci Resolve? You totally can. You can go into monochrome <laughs> mode and you can totally like bring up the blue channel and bring down the red and green channel. It's totally doable in post-production. But it's a little more punk rock to just do it on set, right? First off, it's going to look different than it does in post. You can probably get it really close in post, but it'll never look exactly the way it would in set. But also, what's really nice about doing it on set is if you set it up all properly on set and you have your monitoring all set up on properly on set, you can start to make decisions based on it on set, right? You can make makeup decisions if you're previewing it properly. You can make wardrobe decisions. You can make backlight decisions, all built around orthochromatic. So from what I've read, they went full ortho on the lighthouse. There are cyan filters from Schneider on the lens for everything they shot. They're baking in that orthochromatic look. And it's sort of interesting because... Uh, people don't watch as, you know, I grew up where short, like where silent cinema was still something it felt like filmmakers were supposed to have watched. Like I definitely saw a lot of silence in high school, a lot of silence in college, and a lot of like film history classes were showing silent films. So it's like a look I have an association with. I teach in a grad school now where I have a lot of 23, 24 year old students who've probably never seen a silent black and white film when they get to grad school. And this is a wow, film school. Wow, really? Oh yeah. yeah, that's you know it's interesting to me. I mean, in just like a couple couple points, um, I think there's an interesting why beyond just your ability to be uh, affect things on set and the punk rock factor. Obviously, the punk rock factor is the coolest one. But I I do feel like I watched this trailer and I was immediately hooked into whatever they were selling because to me they created it, the the the. The orthochromatic, which I didn't even know until you and I were talking about it offline. And then I was like, we have to talk about this on the podcast. But I just thought, okay, academy ratio. They went even more boxy than academy ratio, right? Yeah. They went pre-academy ratio. So that's something we have to update in the post about the trailer. Um, but they shot on like black and white stock, orthochromatic, in that little old box 
And the way it, it all comes together, with the way it's framed, with the way the shots are put together, with the way the shadows are, that you are, it's a time capsule, it's an artistic experience, it's someone truly playing with the medium. And those little pieces build to a bigger whole. And I think that you can't, like, you know, we have, we post all the time about, you know, a film grain look you can get using X, Y, or Z. It does not replicate what this feeling is when you watch this trailer. Uh, and it's a, you know, if you love film and you have the shorthand in your mind of what those early silence or uh, even like, I, I'm, so I'm surprised. I want to get to this other point real quick. You said that they started going panchromatic as late as 1939. With Kodak, I started feel, doing that? I, I need to reread my old American cinematographers, but I feel like film was predominantly orthochromatic through the 20s. And I feel like Plus X and Double X and some of the other stocks that we associate with panchromatic black and white, I feel like the Academy Awards for those. Now, it's possible the stock came out in 34 and it didn't get the Technical Academy Award till 37, 38. Like, I don't know my history that well. But I feel like panchromatic stocks really came into the fore in the mid to late 30s. David Mullen, if he listens to this podcast, will know the exact dates they came out and will correct me about it. You know, um, when yeah. I, yeah, when I think about, I mean, I'm a big, not just through film school and film theory, but just as an actual fan, I like, like really old movies. I like silent movies. And I particularly like a lot of the Hollywood movies of the 1930s when I feel still, it still is the true golden age, if you really know what you're talking about, of Hollywood. But even though the 70s and some people say the 90s now as well fit into that potential category. But I didn't realize movies like Grand Hotel were shot on this orthochromatic stock. Some of like the biggest sort of defining early major Hollywood movies. Uh, so I kind of want to go back and look. And now I'm wondering about like Stagecoach, which I know is 1939, but has some of like, the uh, Stagecoach would have been no Stagecoach pan. would have been uh, panchromatic. That would have been okay. Uh, the big thing in the late 30s was getting up to 200 ASA. So there was 50 ASA pancro, I think, by the mid 30s, and then 200 ASA pancro is what came out 38, 39. That's double X that everybody would have been super excited about. So I think. I mean, I'm sure Stagecoach would have been Pancro. Citizen Kane was Pancro, for instance. Yeah, because so. by then, because that's 41, and by then you're doing a, they're doing a lot more in low light. Yeah. And I assume, I mean, low light by t by, by their standards. <laughs> by their standards. Yeah, yeah, I just imagine those giant things throwing tons of yeah. light. But like, yes. Uh, but this again, this movie, man, I can't wait to see it because, like, I mean, just t talking. You can also think about like Fritz Lang movies or like any number of like black and white silence movies from the twenties. The Chaplin movies. It really yeah. does evoke the emotional experience those movies do. And if you like movies as a film watcher or filmmaker or whatever, if you ever get a chance to see something like a silent from the twenties projected anywhere, go check it out because I think you can appreciate it on a different level in the way it was supposed to be seen and experienced. Um, they just feel different on film in person than they do uh, when you're watching them at home. Absolutely. Okay. Tech news for this week. The lead story is Metabones. If you guys don't know Metabones, you will now. Metabones has come out with a dedicated speed booster just for the Blackmagic Pocket. So there's so much context I need to lay in to get into why this is news. First off, the Blackmagic Pocket, if you don't know it, is a $1,500 camera that shoots 4K RAW. Now, it uses a smaller sensor size, the micro four-third sensor size, which is like roughly equivalent of like 
older super 35 millimeter size. It's actually even smaller than that. So, you know, the big news in cameras in the last year has always been full frame cameras like the A7S II, the S1H. These are all full frame can cameras, bigger sensor. You got the Airy LF and the C700 FF and all of those at like the high end cinema range. That is not what the Blackmagic Pocket's all about. The Blackmagic Pocket is about 4K raw for $1,500. Now, I did a review of this camera last year. I was fine with it. I love the 4K raw aspect of it. I love that there's all these great real connectors. They have like a real XLR and you can shoot. There's a USB port that you can like just plug in a drive and shoot to it. There's real power connectors. For a $1,500 camera, there's all this like really great stuff that attaches to it that's robust. But I wasn't like super excited about the camera just because it felt like awkward in my hand. And I realized that's not like the world's worst aspect of a review, but like it didn't feel natural to hold it and it didn't have internal in image stabilization. And, uh, you know, it just didn't quite, I, I was really excited about version two. Despite my like, I like this, but review, it has been a huge hit. It, like they can't keep it on shelves <laughs> everywhere. Everyone, it turns out 4K raw for $1,500 is a huge selling point. And that camera is selling like hotcakes and everyone really loves it and good for them. I'm glad it's out there. Uh, somebody showed up on a shoot I was on on Wednesday and, um, you know, we were shooting Alexa and they were like, hey, can I just shoot B camera with this? So I'm going to get to cut together like <laughs> A camera Alexa and B camera Blackmagic Pocket and we're going to see how they cut together. Um, I, I want to hear. I, you know what? I think you should. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You know what? I think you should do a post about that because I think, I I think that's too. a I think that's a potentially very valuable learning experience you're going to have yes. for to share with us. So for the record, everything we needed, we were getting with a camera. It just happened that the DP's friend showed up with a black magic pocket and was like, can I just shoot random B camera? But if we end up integrating any of that, I will definitely write about it. Um, and frankly, looking at some of the dailies, I was kind of like, whoa, these look pretty cool. Um, I will add on top. So, so that's the black magic pocket. So what's the Metabone speed booster? So, this is going to get a little nerdy for a podcast, but I think we're all going to enjoy it. It is a <laughs> device that adapts a lens to a camera and also makes the maximum aperture of that lens wider. So, usually we talk about lenses in terms of, we talk about lens speed in terms of their maximum aperture. A lens that can open to a 2 is not as fast as a lens that can open to a 1.4. If it can open to 1.4, the aperture opens wider, which means you can work in lower light. So you can have less light or you can be further from your light and still get good exposure. So usually if I buy a lens that opens to a 1.4, it just opens to a 1.4. That's all it does. Now, if I put it on the speed booster, which it seems when you first hear about the speed booster, it feels a little bit like those infomercials where it's like, pour this in your gas tank and get extra gas mileage. Feels a little like hokey, but it there's solid science behind it. It actually works. You put it on a speed booster and all of a sudden, like if I bought a lens that opened to a 2, it is now putting out the equivalent of a 1.4 through the speed booster. I'm getting an extra nearly stop of light from the speed booster. That's why it's called the speed booster. How does it do it? Well, it takes a bigger image and it makes it smaller. So remember before I said the Blackmagic Pocket was a micro four thirds sensor. That's a smaller sensor. So if I put a full frame lens on the front of the speed booster, and the back of the speed booster is on the micro four thirds side, it's shrinking that image down. And when it shrinks it down, it makes it brighter because it's the same amount of light, but it's covering a smaller area. 
So, for something like a speed booster to work, the backside has to be a small sensor, like a micro four-thirds sensor, and the front side lens has to be something bigger, like a Super 35, or even better, a full-frame lens. But if you own a set of full-frame Cine Primes, like the Canon Cine Primes, or the Sigma Cine Primes, or something like that, you can, and they open to a 1.5, all of a sudden you have lenses that open to the equivalent of a 1 by putting them on the speed booster on the Pocket Cinema. A, a lens that opens to 1, you can work in really crazy low light. The reason why this was specific news to talk about this week is it's not only cool that this is here, because there was a Micro Four Thirds speed booster before, but it really speaks to the popularity of the Blackmagic Pocket, that they customized it for the Pocket, because the Pocket's got a weird body. Like, it just does. It's sort of awkward and ungainly. And Metabones was like, hey, well, this camera is a big enough hit. We're going to make one specially fit for the pocket with, like, the right length for where the pocket lens sits and, like, working around all the weirdness of the Blackmagic Pocket's body. Because this camera is such a hit, we'd be missing out if we're not participating in it. So Metabones has made a specific speed booster for the pocket, which is sort of super cool. All right, everybody, and then last up this week, we have Ask No Film School. Paul Rayner asks, I'm looking for suggestions for software to use with my X-Rite Color Monkey display. Uh, I'm not happy with the technical customer service I'm getting with them. Parenthetical aside, no surprise. Um, I have some questions about the monitor calibration software. They are simply not asking. I can't really find an alternative. Calman is above my head, I think. Is there something in between? So here's the thing. I love X-Rite. X-Rite's an amazing company. I am looking at two X-Rite color charts in front of me right now. I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm assuming the people who do the amazing X-Rite color charts are not the same people who do the Color Monkey software because I've heard nothing good about Color Monkey software. Here's, Paul Rayner, here's the news that I have to give my students every year. There is no good solution beneath the Calman Light Illusion price point. Right, you mentioned Calman. Calman's I think fifteen hundred bucks. Light Illusion's like two thousand dollars. There is no way to calibrate your monitor cheaper than that. And I'm going to make it even more annoying. There's no way to calibrate a computer monitor. I'm going to keep saying this and saying this and saying this. <laughs> you cannot calibrate a computer monitor. Computer monitors are made at too much volume. There's too many different ones of them, and there's no point. Because, like, if you've ever had the experience where, like, you open a video in Premiere and it looks one way and you open it in Resolve, it looks in another, and then you open it in QuickTime and it looks another, and you open it in VLC and it looks another, you'll know that the software is too big a part of it. It's not just the raw hardware. The software and the hardware work together to create an image on a computer monitor. So even if X-Rite, the color chart makers, and I use a lot of X-Rite color charts, like, take over the X-Rite Color Monkey program and make it as good as all the X-Rite color charts we use. And they made an amazing color calibrator and the software was affordable and it all worked great. You still couldn't calibrate your computer monitor because the video is not going to look the same in QuickTime that it does in VLC, that it does in Premiere, that it doesn't resolve, that it doesn't Media Composer. Software is part of the way a computer shows video. And as long as that is true, there's no point in calibrating a computer monitor. If you want a consistent calibrated image, it needs to be something where you take software out of the equation. The way we do that in the film industry is we use a broadcast monitor, and that broadcast monitor is being fe fed a video signal. 
And that video signal is a consistent thing where software doesn't matter. We use, we use a dedicated hardware box for this. Blackmagic makes them, AJA makes them, a lot of people make them. And they put out like a dedicated video signal over SDI or HDMI, but it's a video signal, software doesn't matter. That video signal standard, Resolve can create it, Premiere can create it, Media Composer can create it, and then they control that hardware box and they send that signal out. If you do that, then it's worth calibrating. Unfortunately, it is not something you can do on like a lower price point situation. The cheapest of those hardware boxes is the Blackmagic Intensity for 150 bucks. You could buy like a small HD OLED for a grand, uh, the seven inch, and then have a calibratable system. I really recommend, depending on what market you're in, focus on getting the right hardware for viewing the image. And don't worry about calibrating it yourself. Hire someone to calibrate it. Every major market has someone who does video calibration. I wish this weren't the case. I so wish that all of the computer companies had gotten together and said, we're all going to, this is how you show video on your computer and all videos do it the same. And then it would be worth it to calibrate. PCs and Macs would look the same and VLC and QuickTime would look the same. I really wish this were true. I didn't make it this way. But, I, <laughs> but it is this way. And literally... In my mind, all of those calibration tools are all, I've never seen any benefit from any of them ever. So I think the headline for this week's podcast is Charles made it this way. So with that, that is another week of the No Film School podcast. Hopefully that is the most negative I will ever be in Ask No Film School. So feel free to reach out and ask us some other questions I can be really negative about in the uh, forums, uh, on the user boards, or you can do Ask at No Film School. You can find me on Twitter at Charles Hain, on Instagram at OnRecky, O-N-R-E-K-K-E. If you like my tech newsy stuff, I have a separate only tech news just tech nerdery podcast the week in film tech you can check out and you can see all of my articles on nofilmschool.com and you can find me on twitter at george edelman find all of this content and more on nofilmschool.com and you can follow us on twitter at, at nofilmschool.com like our facebook page we'll see you guys next week <laughs>